Hi, I'm Monse, and this is Musings of the Artist, a podcast where I have meaningful conversations with all kinds of artists. Eleanor Carucci is an Israeli-American fine art photographer based in New York City. Her photographs are included in the collections of the Museum of Modern Art New York, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, Houston Museum of Fine Art, among others. Her work has been published in the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, Details, New York Magazine, W, Aperture, and many other publications. She has published four monographs, Closer, Diary of a Dancer, Mother, and Midlife. In this episode, we chat about her wonderful book, Midlife, and the gifts of getting older. We also discuss long-term projects and the nuances of moving between cultures and existing in two languages. As you will hear, Eleanor is such a warm, open, and genuine person, so it's such a joy to chat with her. I hope you enjoy listening in. Here's my conversation with Eleanor Carucci. Eleanor to be able to talk to you again. For the people listening, we just came off of an eight-week workshop that Eleanor ran about womanhood in photography, and it was fantastic. So yes, I'm so excited to get to continue chatting with you in this format. So I usually like to start, Eleanor, I ask most people this question at the beginning. So, you know, the people that I speak with on this podcast are all artists and of different kinds. And what brings us to the conversation is usually what they do for a living. You know, if like I'm talking to a photographer or a writer or a musician, people know them as that thing. But I usually like to ask like beyond that thing that you do for a living, like how would you describe yourself? But what I love about you is that that's all in your work, really. <laughs> it feels like who you are as a person is also what you do. But regardless, I still want to ask you that question. You know, how would you start to describe yourself? It depends on the day, but um, I am, of course, a photographer, an artist, a mother, a daughter, an immigrant, a Jewish-Israeli uh, woman. And I, I hate kind of the word wife because I feel I'm a friend and a lover to my husband. So... I prefer the friend lover than the wife, but I'm also a wife if you legally want this. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to talk um, about all those things, especially the your cultural identity, because that's really important to you. Um, and so we'll get into that a little bit later. But um, before, I want to talk about sort of truth and authenticity in art, because that's also very prevalent, of course, in all your work. And you often talk about photography and the things that make you uncomfortable, which I think is what makes your photographs so profound. And I, I heard you say, I think it was in another podcast, that you are letting the camera put a secret out there and then you're liberated from the secret. Can you talk more about that? Yes. I mean, um, it's something that I thought about as an, an answer to many people who are asking me about being courageous as, as an artist. And I, I always felt answering to them, I felt that I'm, I'm not being courageous. Um, and then I had to, you know, explain it to myself. And, you know, and this is something I told you before about like being a teenager and always making fun of myself or my upper lip hair or my beard or whatever, whatever things were there that were kind of my flaws. 
I always had to put them out there. I always had to make fun of them. And this is something I also talk about admiring stand-up comedians for the same reason, for taking your autobiographical background, your who you are as a human being, and putting your flaws and your weaknesses and your fears and your beauties and everything about you in your art. But especially the, I guess, the things that society teaches us to hide for me, it is liberating to photograph them and put them out there in the world because it's really not that big of a deal right. at the end of the day, especially once you share it and even the responses you get from people, how people are more compassionate than we think and they share their own truth and fears and, and flaws. But I also recognize that it's it's specific to every person. So I'm not saying I have a recipe for happiness, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm saying this is right for me. I believe it's right for many people. I think there is something toxic about secrets, Mm -hmm. smaller big. Yeah. Even if you don't necessarily, uh, if you're not an artist, for example, and you don't put it out into the whole, for the whole world to see, but if you just like tell a friend, it feels so, the things we hold on to sometimes, it becomes kind of like poison in the body, you know? Right. Um, And it burdens us. It burdens us. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also interesting what you're saying. I was just thinking about about how you're saying how some people are, you know, say, oh, you're so brave and sort of, you know, a lot of the thing. Do you think that's partially cultural too? Because I sort of think, like, for, for example, we talked, you and I in the workshop and stuff talked about both of our cultural backgrounds, you know, for example, nudity is not a taboo. Like we, I grew up with nudity in, in the house all the time and I am not ashamed of that at all. And, you know, when I'm with my girlfriends in Spain, we are topless chatting all the time, no big deal. But here I actually am intentionally thinking about that when I have friends over, like I'm, I'm like, oh, for, to make them comfortable. I'm, you know what I mean? And so I was just thinking as you were saying that about being brave, like me, because you do have nudity in your work and there's some, maybe some people think that brave but to you it's like oh it's not a big deal right (laughs) yeah no definitely it's definitely cultural and within even within my Israeli culture and upbringing I was fortunate to be raised in a home that was very open and laid back about the body and nudity and I've seen my parents nude my grandparents and definitely many women in, in my family aunts and cousins and it was not a big deal so I definitely feel that it's something about the culture and then it's not only in regards to nudity, it's in general a more relaxed culture in terms of being open and sharing and talking about things than some other Western cultures, American and European cultures. And it's funny because that's so true. And even it didn't really occur to me as a teenager it's more now as an adult, I'm looking back and just thinking about those cultural differences. And I was telling them, yeah, it's weird. You know, in, in the States, they're much more like, you know, you can't just be topless on the beach. You know what I mean? It's right, like, no, no, no. Right. Like, of course not. And right. um, and things like that. And talking about also even like death. Like, we don't talk about that in the States, you know, a lot. A lot. It's very like taboo also. These, uh, these things that are just different, you know, and how it's, it's – I'm just always – endlessly fascinated with the cultural differences, you know, and, and when you are someone who walks between cultures, you know, and how you maybe have a little bit of both in you. And it also makes you aware, you know, when you're, there's some things you just take for granted, you never question them, you never think about them until 
you are immigrating to another country, another culture, and then you suddenly, then you sometimes even have to choose, like, who am I? Yes. How am I behaving? What are my relationships? What do I tell friends? How honest I am? And you have to decide all of a sudden. You can't just be, as one of my friends once said, you're in the heaven of being born and raised in one country and you're staying in this country. This is a heaven that you're not even aware of. Moving cultures forces us to, to redefine ourselves. You know, so I am, I've lived more than half my life in America. So now many things are a decision. Am I more towards the American behavior or the Israeli behavior or none or in between? Or right. So I really relate to what you're saying about the kind of torn or layered or complex identity as, as a result of, of being an immigrant. You know, I just spent an extended time in Spain. I got back to the States um, recently and I was thinking about noticing and I hadn't really noticed this before, but I realized that it's almost like a slightly different version of myself when I'm there versus here. Right. Like I'm more relaxed over there. I'm more loud. I'm more this and I'm a little bit more. And I think I, when I'm in the States, I'm just sort of because I'm I'm adapting to the culture. Do you find that you, when you go back to Israel, for example, do you find that a part of you is sort of like opened, you know, there? It's very, very complicated, you know, and it's it's been, sometimes I even like dread those visits because the transitions to Israel and then coming back here, I sometimes will feel, you know, because when I'm here, I'm very Israeli. It's very obvious in, with my accent and my behavior. And I'm the Israeli and I blame everything for being Israeli or being Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm Israeli and all my friends, a lot of my friends are Jewish, but they kind of love the side of me. But then when I go back to Israel after not living there for 26 years, I suddenly realize that I'm not completely Israeli, that parts of it have really changed. And I feel different but then within a few days I'll start like you know cursing on the while driving like opening the window (laughs) in Arabic and I'm like so confusing I'm like you know who am I and there is definitely the Eleanor I kind of develop not that it's not authentic real or part of myself but it's the Eleanor that is here speaking English in New York reinventing myself and it's also a privilege of the opportunity to reinvent yourself away from your childhood friends and high school friends and people that were arrogant to you and look down at you. And I'm suddenly in New York and I'm, I have no past, you know, here. And I created this person from parts of myself. So it always makes me, it's not that I feel more myself in Israel. It's just two, a little bit different Eleanor's, but I remember the first few times that I was in Israel and I missed home and home was here. And it was maybe 10 or 12 years into moving to America that I was like, oh my God, I come back here and I feel that I came home. And it was wonderful in a way to feel at home in a place in New York City, but it was also a loss. And when you get to that point, I imagine, I mean, that's kind of, this is what I sort of feel is like, I, I always feel like I don't really have one home. You know, like it's, I'm always missing. I'm always missing another piece. So it's an interesting way to live. I also wanted to ask you, tied to this, another thing I find fascinating too, is that, you know, you're Israeli, you're born there and your children were born and raised in America. 
And so I, I wrote down that you wrote somewhere, you said somewhere, I'm Israeli and they're Americans born and raised in New York. So our cultural upbringings are very different. And I also am fascinated by this. You know, I remember for me growing up, my mom, because I grew up mostly in the States, I spent early childhood in Spain. But my mom, when she would get mad, you know, at us, she would be like, that is so American. <laughs> you know, no, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, but you raised us here. You know? So I was curious about... I would love to hear you talk a little bit about this because we did talk about it in workshop a little too about, about, yeah, just about that, about being, you know, a feeling like your children had a different experience culturally. Yeah, no, this is a really big, really big topic for me because it's so complex. And, you know, actually just a few minutes ago when I talked about that, this started feeling at home here in New York, it was very related to having kids. And I often refer to them as giving birth to roots, that they're my roots to America, because until I had kids, there was no need to define some elements of my life. I could be whatever I wanted in the moment. I could feel like I don't belong into some certain institutes. And once you have kids and you want to give them a sense of home and, and belongings, you no longer have this privilege of like, whatever, I had to be a part of a public school system here and to be involved and to set play dates and to understand the systems and the systems of getting into middle school, like different million things. And I had to commit in order for them to feel that this is home. It had to be my home completely in many ways. And it really changed the way I felt about New York. And so I feel this was this was one step. And the other thing was just what you said. I had to not, you know, resist the temptation to try to raise for my selfish even, you know, reasons, kids who are Israelis, because first of all, it's impossible. You can't have a child in America, raise them in America. I can spend summers in Israel, they they're fluent in Hebrew, we can have many experiences there and we can be close to the family, but they can't be Israeli as much as it would be convenient to me and my husband. We're both Israelis. And I had to get over, but sometimes failing the, oh, this is so American or you are so Americans. And right. I still I still say it because as hard as I tried, I couldn't, you know, just like your mom, there's something that I really opposed to in the culture. And I know the other you know, I know another culture, I know the Israeli culture, some things I really prefer the way they are here, and some less. So I'm trying not to blame the poor things for being American, because this is who they are, born and raised, and they would answer to me, they're like, this is not our fault that you chose to leave, especially my daughter, that you chose That's to That's what I used to say, too. Yeah. You want us to be, this is all we can be, this is who we are, this is who you are also, mom, even though they know my identity is more mixed. It's not fair. Um, it's not fair to the children, you know, to, to bring them here, raise them here, and then blame them for being Americans. And it's very complex. Yeah, it is. It is. And you, I remember you were saying in workshop too that because you have, you know, um, uh, photos, of course, that are of, of the family that are nude and all that. And that, uh, did you say that your, I think your son said something about like his peers were making fun of him? Yes. Yes, that he like that he was blaming me for making porn. Are you talking about? That? <laughs> well, I I also was thinking about 
I could sympathize because I also, when I was younger too, like, you know, for, and also my, my stepmother is Argentine, you know, at my dad's house, there would be like a photo of her topless, which is totally normal, you know, in, in that culture. But, but then, you know, my friends coming over, I remember feeling like embarrassed a little bit, like, oh, they can't see that because they're going to make fun of me, right. you know? Right, so, right. We so understand, you know, I understand. I think it's getting a little better now that my kids are almost 18. Uh, but still, there is a picture here. When my son has Zoom sessions here in my room, there is a picture of me breastfeeding the kids. It's not like really something too sexy. And we have to remove it because it doesn't want people in the Zoom to see it. Uh, oh, I, I, mean, I completely understand because even adults that I meet um, and they're aware of my work, it can seem, you know, weird to them or unusual or so... I understand how my kids don't want to start to explain the whole thing every time they meet a new friend. Right. Well, and just that's just like a very concrete example, I think, of a of a cultural difference. I mean, there's so many nuances, right, and little things that that come into play. But yeah, it's it is interesting, and um, and also I was thinking about how you were saying unrelated to to the culture thing, but you were saying about sort of I think you were saying you were sort of made fun of as a teenager, or that fear of being made fun of, and. I was just thinking how, you know, the more I talk to artists and the more, you know, I've been writing and all this, I think it's like, I don't think I know a single artist at this point who wasn't, you know, an outsider as a child. <laughs> you know, I feel like it's like a key ingredient, <laughs> to, um, which is just really interesting, you know? Or that maybe we're just sharing it because, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm just now my kids are almost 18 and I mean... In a way, you relive a little bit your own childhood and teen years. And I think it's those are very sensitive years for everybody. So there's something in us artists that we're using our own pains and experiences and struggles to create from, each of us in a different way. But I feel that if you ask every person, um, they will all have know this feeling of not belonging of not being strong enough or tall enough or pretty enough or normal enough quote unquote or have there always been you know kind of because I used to feel that my kids when they were younger are embarrassed by me because I was an immigrant but then I saw my American friends you're always embarrassed by your parents whatever they do or say or if you dare to move or sing or do something <laughs> so outrageous so I think we artists, we're just sharing it um, maybe more or we're finding it as a source of our inspiration we're creating from. We're developing those sensitivities and sensibilities. But I guess it's a human experience that is mutual to all of us. Of course, because everybody feels like an outsider at some point in their life, right? You know, in, in different ways. So that's a good point. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to talk about um, your incredible book midlife which I have right next to me I'm obsessed with it it's so beautiful and yeah and you know I'm going to be 40 in two months so here I come (laughs) (laughs) midlife Um, (laughs) it's funny because doesn't 40 feel like this marker in the book it's mentioned too is like this this age I I was going to ask you everyone first of all should go get this book um in the in the afterward you talk about some of the things about how you came into uh, making this work. And it sort of seemed to be sort of something that you just sort of fell into that you realized you were making. And then you talk about some of the things that you felt you were losing as you were entering the stage of your life as, you know, 
we get reminded of all the time, right? Society is always telling us all the things that are going to make us invisible as women in our midlife. You also talk about some of the things that you felt like you were gaining. And I was wondering if you could maybe now talk about some of those gifts that came to you as you started to come into early midlife. Yeah, I mean, it's also really hard to know what is within ourselves and what is what we project from the culture we're living in and our society. And even the invisible thing is is very complicated because, you know, we're talking about the male gaze for artists and men looking at us and objectifying us. Um, And then when it's gone, we miss it. So, you know, what does it tell me about myself that I miss men looking at me or treating me in some ways? It's so confusing. And, you know, even two weeks ago, I, I did a post about the lip fillers I got, and again, the same thing. Am I a feminist? Is it okay with my kind of work to do something like that? What is feminism? It's like everything in human experiences. It's learned, it's complicated, it's complex. I definitely feel that I gained just more calm way of feeling about who I am, what I did, what I will probably not do, and just being sounds so simple, but it it took so long to get, like just being me, just existing in the world as who I am, I do feel that I have more compassion, more understanding to people, I'm more tolerant, more patient. And this is this is something that that makes life more beautiful to me. So it can't come without age. It comes with age. I I guess I somehow earned it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. And you know, p- people always say that, you know, you get, you get wiser and you don't care as much anymore, but it really, I'm fine. Oh, it it's such a cliche and it's so true. And it's yeah. true when, it, when you feel it, it feels it's true in such a profound, such a profound way. So, and also, also motherhood, I feel the journey of motherhood and those teen years with my kids, raising another human being and bring them to adulthood is something that taught me so much about the world and about people. It's so humbling and you learn a lot. And this is also something that I see as one of the beauties of, of being middle-aged. Totally. And and you had a picture in the book of your uterus, which is like, I mean, how many, <laughs> how many people can say that? <laughs> I mean, but it is such a marker, right? Of I mean, as a woman, whether you're mother, mother or not, just sort of like, I mean, maybe for some women, I can't, obviously I can't speak for all women, but I, I would, it is certainly for me, you know, it's very prevalent in my mind of, wow, this is, I'm getting closer to that point where I can no longer have children. Just thinking about you taking that picture and sort of grappling with that, you know, even though you had children, but, you know, just sort of that. There is. I, I actually heard and read in many, many sources because I read a lot about hysterectomy. Yeah, that the feeling of loss and mourning um, and and the sadness that comes with the hysterectomy, it doesn't differ between women who had children or not. Fortunately or not, it is a part of our identity as women, and I think the loss of our fertility is difficult. To all of us, mothers or not, um, women who wanted to have more children or women who didn't. From the moment we are born, this is a part of who we are as girls and then as women, our fertility, our ability to have children. 
And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I don't feel that feminism is about denying our physiology and who we are as, 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 you know, our bodies and what we can do, as long as it's not the only thing that defines us. So I feel that with the hysterectomy that also, by the way, almost 40% of women eventually in America will go through hysterectomy, something that I was shocked by because no one is talking about it. It's just much more, you know, extreme. There is the day that it's been removed from your body. And this was many times, as you mentioned before, I said there is something therapeutic about my work, about putting secrets out there. Having to look a stare at my uterus as soon as I woke up from my three-hour anesthesia was difficult. And I mean, I put myself into something a bit more extreme in order to take this picture. I'm glad I took this picture, but it was it was really hard for me in ways that I even can't explain now what I felt in the moment because I was not going to have more children. I was 44. And, and I many times can't even reach as deep as I want to myself to think about those almost a year of feeling depressed, of feeling like I'm not a woman, I'm not, this, I'll never be the same. This is the end of my life, you know, not in a suicidal way, but in a way that I'm, I'm not, what do I worth? Mm. In ways that I'm almost ashamed to share, like, is my worth about having a uterus inside my body? And so it had to, I had to confront a lot of self-definition, I, yeah. I guess, like who, who I am, what have I done, and what are the ingredients that create me as, as, a, as a human being. But the, the, the whole photographing the uterus was almost comic because I did not plan on taking this picture as soon as I woke up from the anesthesia, but because of the hospital getting nervous once they heard and my gear was there, my strobes, and they wanted to take it away. And someone from the hospital was fighting with a surgeon, the woman who did my surgery. And so it had to be done right then because it became a bit of a drama. And as so my husband wow. said, are you up? Are you up? They're going to take your uterus away. And he's sitting there with the strobes and my camera and the surgeon is running to me with my uterus in the back. And she's like, she's up. We're going to do it now because there was a woman some official like from the hospital and she's like, this cannot happen. We have to take it away now. Even though it was a part of my body just an hour earlier, an hour. So the moment will, I will never, I mean, my husband witnessed the whole fight about my uterus and it's such a comic moment, but I mean, so much like life, how things that are sad and difficult and losses are mixed in and, and you know, with intertwined with, with laughter. And exactly. Yeah. And we usually can only laugh about it after the fact, right? <laughs> and that's, that's interesting because I remember you talking about the importance of, and you mentioned it today too, about the importance of comedians in your life. Right. Um, it, I think part of it came from, I feel first there is to all of us. I mean, I was so inspired by photography all my life and by, you know, amazing photographers like Nan Golden and Sally Mann and Tioni Giron and Mariel and Mark. But once it becomes your profession, um, and we all we all have those crises of, you know, the jealousy, comparing ourselves to other artists and 
even going to galleries, I can't not think about, oh, I try to approach this art, this gallery, they never, mm-hmm. you know, we all become so woven in with our insecurities and our fa- professional failures that it makes it sometimes harder to enjoy one of the biggest loves of my life, photography. So I think that's, and then we turn to other places where we don't care. I don't care. I'm not jealous at the success of other, even painters or sculptor or filmmakers. I, you know, yeah. I'm just enjoying their art and I'm trying, I have to work on myself in order to get there as a photographer. But also there was a lot of, I feel many times in the art world, even the word love or emotions, they're a little bit of a no-no. It's more conceptual, more intellectual, colder somehow. And there was so much, suddenly I was, especially as I became a mother, there was so much honesty and kind of hard truth being delivered by stand-up comedians that I found myself more and more drawn to their art and, and being inspired by their art. And, um, and also their ability to seduce the audience with humor with making you know telling a funny story which i i guess use other tools like beauty or lighting or colors in order to deliver some hard truths that are many times we all have them in common and you know and many times when you that's why i think people who listen to good comedians instead of stand-up artists and see good photography many people think they can do it because it seems this is just me. This is just my life. This is just a moment. And this is what I'm also aiming for. I want my work to be universal. I want people to see it and feel, yes, of course, I'm thinking about my mother. I'm thinking about my sister. I'm thinking about myself. And to be accessible to everyone. If you're a human being, I want to, I want my work is for you, for, for any person. But I think many times that's what makes both stand-up comedy and photography something that people think, oh, if I just put my heart to it. I can do it. And it, we know, you know how hard it is to be a good stand-up comedian, a good photographer, a good anything, actually. Yeah. I think it's so important what you were saying about the feeling of, like, when you were saying going to a gallery and how that you're not immune to feeling jealousy or feeling, doing that comparison thing. And I just, I, I so appreciate you talking about that, like, out loud, because I think, I mean, everyone I talk to as artists, everyone feels that way. You know, and I think I think we don't talk about it enough. And it's like, it's just natural. And it's like, how do you work through it, right? And finding your ways to, to not get it so in your head about it. And I think talking about it helps to release it, you know, and... Um, exactly. Yeah. Just like the other things. Exactly. It's okay about it. And it's okay to forgive yourself. I mean, even with some of my best friends, when they tell me about a big thing that happened in the career, I can feel the jealousy. And I'm like, this is people I love and I will probably love till the day I die. And I learned to be like, okay, it's okay, Eleanor. I'm a little yes. bit jealous. Yes. Also, I also love them and I'll, I'll get over it. It's there. We feel that we first have to be this perfect version of ourselves, but we, we can't. We're always flawed and we, we can only try to be the best and forgive some of the worst. and. And that's it. That's all we can do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, I just thought I'd share this with you because it's somewhat related. I was just thinking about how yesterday in my therapy, I was telling my therapist about how um, I, I was telling her how like I saw on this, a guy that I had dated a long time ago, uh, like his new girlfriend on Instagram or something like, you know, that he had posted. 
about her. And I was like, oh, I was telling her, I was like, why do I feel, I don't think it's jealousy exactly, but I don't, I feel kind of icky about it. And I don't know why, because I'm over him. I was like going through this whole explanation. Right. And she was like, Monsa, Monsa, like, it's okay to just feel, it's okay to just feel that you don't have to like intellectualize it and think, why were you upset? And you know what I, mean? I know yeah. it's, it's- we are as people and we're just human you know it's so hard to feel and this is how we feel as women as lovers as artists that we are replaceable i mean maybe other than to our parents or maybe god forbid to our children we are replaceable and we can't change it i can make the best work that i can and put my all of me into it but you know all of us if you're a good doctor a good artist um, good singer it's wonderful and people appreciate your work for what it is it is at the same time very special and unique to you but on the other hand we're all replaceable and I think this is what because I went through the same thing of a previous lover from many years ago <laughs> and I saw something on Instagram that he's getting married and I was like why am I feeling what, what like what, what the hell I mean it's been like years and uh, but I think it's the feeling that you know someone got over you and now they found someone else and they're having it's it's, it's a very existential thing. Yes. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Totally, yes. Okay. See again, helpful to just talk about it, right? Because it gets it out there <laughs> no. and you're like, okay, not a big deal, right? <laughs> well, you wanted to, this is kind of a random question here, but I, I took note of this. I heard you or read you say this um that in English the term taking pictures is different from what it is in Hebrew. You are taking pictures. You're taking moments of someone's life. Um, And, you know, I'm so fascinated by these intricacies of language. And I just wanted to hear you talk about that. Yeah. I mean, this is, and again, being now bilingual, um, existing in two languages, because I feel learning another language is one thing, but then existing your life and everyday life in another language makes you understand how important words are and we know it you know from art to politics to and in hebrew the word to take pictures is letzalem and letzalem comes from god created us in his image so again the word image in the bible is telem is not the same word as image exactly as they translated it to the new testament so actually the word to take picture, the word photography comes from how God created man he, in his own shadow, in, in his selim. And so it's very different and much more connected to God's creation of us people. So I guess in in a way it's more, it's given more credit to photographers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Somehow, for me, always connected to the first big creation, the Genesis book. One of the first things we read about in the Bible that I studied for many years, as every Israeli student does. And in English, on the other hand, there is something more harshly realistic about it. We're taking, we're taking, it's unbelievable, taking pictures. And this is something we have to come to terms with whenever people are asking me about the morals of photographing your family or strangers or any person, whether you're a documentary photographer, fine art, whether it's people who are very dear to you or someone you just met, I feel that we have to come to terms that we're there asking 
to take something and that there are many other things that we can do to this person, whether they're your child or stranger, that will be more beneficial to them. So this is something we are, maybe they can you know, benefit from our photography somehow, but we're doing it for ourselves because it does represent our voice, something we want to say to the world, something we need to create. And we are using other people, not necessarily abusing other people, hopefully not, but we are asking something from them. We are taking something them and if we want to give we can if we can give anything from print to to money to being a good mother to taking to being there for friends or people we photographed but it's we have to come to terms especially in these days where people are more aware of of taking advantage or exploiting uh communities or people you know it's it's very complex and then the word taking pictures it's already there, you know, in those two words, it's already the only problematic aspect of photography is there in the way that it's been said in, in been, you know, expressed in the English language. Right. I'm so, I'm in awe of, you know, street photographers, but I tried doing a little bit of that and it just, I, it didn't feel good. <laughs> you know, it didn't feel like I'm just taking people's photos without them knowing about it. Um, and I, it's not that I'm criticizing it, by any means. It's just that it's something personal that I felt like I can't do. Right. I, yeah. I'm with you. I can't do it, but I do very much support yes. photography. Yes. And I feel that we should have the right to take pictures in public spaces um, and, and that it always represents different cultures, different cities. And it's, I just, it is, it's not for me. I just get nervous. And the pictures I want to take i usually need more collaboration in order to make them happen but other people create in different ways and, and i love i love street photography oh me too yeah and didn't did i hear that your was is your husband a street photographer yeah so both my husband and i we met in art school we both studied photography and he does street photography but he decided he graduated a year before me and decided to go to the internet that was just forming in those early days this is 93, 94. So he's uh, doing, like, he's working to, to write code and do backhand for the internet. Uh, but he still takes pictures, I think, almost every day. And he does triple So very, very, very different work than mine. That's cool, though. That is neat that you have, like, you know, step, like, you, you're both understand the same world but you're different parts of it <laughs> oh yeah yes no and our love to photography um is is, a, is a, one of the biggest bonds that we have and he is my assistant in jobs starting when i was 21 i'm 50 so he's been my assistant on and off for almost 30 years um That's amazing. longer than he's been the father of my children <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. we've been collaborating many times and going to see shows together and seeing documentaries and looking at gear together. And we like both really love photography. Oh, that's so great. Um, I wanted to ask about, I remember in class that we were talking about long-term projects and, and yours and at the end of class. And you were, you mentioned Diary of a Belly Dancer, which was one of your uh, books. And if I remember correctly, I think you said that you felt that maybe you put that out too early and, you know, with long-term projects, it takes such patience to, and it can take years and even decade or more. 
So I want to hear you talk a little bit about about that sort of when do you know when something is right at the time, you know, to release and maybe, yeah, just tracing back a little bit to uh, Diary of a Belly Dancer, because I think that's a really good uh, reminder and lesson for us all. And everyone has had that kind of <laughs> project, you know, where they're like, oh, I, I released it too early. <laughs> I know, even though I feel, I really feel it's different for each one of my projects. And with Diary of a Dancer, even though it did suffer from being a short, relatively short, where all my other books are seven to nine years, and this was a bit less than two years. There was no other choice. I ended it when I got pregnant and I knew early on, I knew I was pregnant with twins and I knew that first of all, my photography is taking much more time, becoming more successful. And my life as a professional belly dancer, when I perform three or four nights a week are behind me. So some things we can intellectually, you know, think about whether this is the right time, do I have enough work and some things many, many things. Life is what it is. And we're following, we're following life and and circumstances that are beyond us. So in a way, my choices were either this is what I have. I'm probably not going to go back back to dancing a lot. Um, So I either not publishing it or I'm publishing it with what I have. And I just publish it. And I think it was, I did compromise this body of work. And as I shared in the class, it didn't do as well. The book didn't do as well, and it didn't do as well in in galleries and and exhibitions. And I don't know what I would have done, you know, knowing all of this, if if you would take me back to this time, if I would make the same decision uh, and what I've learned from it. But it, it, it definitely could use another more year. Yeah, it's just, it's hard. It's like you said, you don't know because... Sometimes, you know, you wonder if you're just being too precious about things, right? Like you're just like, okay, like it's time, you know, or, or yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. So I guess you don't know until you know later on. Projects, I mean, you know, starting mother, my third book was very obvious because I just got pregnant, but then to end it took me a while and conversations with uh, my editor in Pristel who thought I could publish it before and I needed time. Sometimes you're just so nervous. It's really hard when people are telling, listen to yourself. Because when you listen to yourself, you listen to the voices who are, you know, the scary Eleanor, the insecure Eleanor. Maybe I shouldn't put it out. I'm not ready. I don't want to deal with, you know, failures or now having to chase galleries for shows and all that. And sometimes listening to yourself is the right thing. So when you have to tell yourself, shut up. I'm going to what you feel because what you feel is insecure and it's your fears. And when you're like, oh, listening to myself is the right thing to do. I will lead my intuition and how I feel will lead the way. Because many times you have to do exactly the opposite of what you feel and get over what you feel. Many, many times you have to to commend what you feel. And it's hard to know when is what and Mm -hmm. which is what. Um, With Diary of a Dancer, it was the fact that it was shorter it's not as universal in its themes as, as my other bodies of work and people relate to it as much the way that i photographed it is more snapshotty and less intimate and intense in some ways so there are other factors to why it didn't do as well but i also learned from them all and as as long as we all do and we put out projects and we try and we publish books we will have failures and successes so 
Absolutely. It means that you're doing something. Totally. And also, I was just thinking as we were talking about that, about the, you know, you never know too when a project might come back around in some other way. Like maybe one of the images from that project might spill into something in the future, you know, that you're working on somehow. Or <laughs> Right. I know. Yeah. 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 Um, can you just talk about a little per- moment because you talk about it in class and I think a lot of people would love hearing about the Ruth Bader Ginsburg colors that you got to photograph. <laughs> what a project. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was, it was in a way, a very unusual way of photographing a person because if you think about all of my bodies of work, um, they're all about people and I do have still lives in my, in my work, but they are as as, as the color is very related to people, they are part of a portrait. I mean, my uterus was kind of a still life when I photographed it, but it talks about femininity and, and, and motherhood. It tells a story of loss. And this was the same thing in a way, in the way that I approached it, because Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a, a hero to me and to my daughter, um, and she she died. It was Rosh Hashanah evening. Um, so my daughter saw it on her phone, and that was it. Like it, she cried, and and I I with her. I mean, we cried for the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but also for knowing what it would mean to the Supreme Court. And and you know, we are we were right to to. It was like a double loss. Um, and then a month later, I got this call from Catherine Pomeranet about this amazing uh, opportunity to go to the Supreme Court and photograph the colors, which Catherine as well was saying, this is still life photography and I'm not, you know, the obvious choice for still life uh, photography or fashion. These are fashion pieces, but in so many ways I am because it was trying to photograph little stories or big stories and parts of Ruth Bader Ginsburg personal and professional life through those colors. And a lot of what we heard there in the Supreme Court from dissent decisions or um, the, the the opera that she went to, uh, like different anecdotes, um, one color with the words of her husband embedded in them, told us so much more about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it was also for me, especially as an immigrant, to go to the Supreme court and uh, have the privilege to photograph those artifacts or personal items of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that I admire so much. It meant a lot, even too much. I mean, I was shaky in the first in the first part of the photo shoot and crying in another part uh, when I saw certain ones and I had to really get over myself because I, didn't <laughs> have so I had like six minutes with each color and I couldn't, wow. you know, I just had to like, um, I don't have time to be emotional. Oh, I <laughs> and my husband was like so usually sweet as it was like, you can't cry. <laughs> it's kind of like um, a uterus, right? Where you're like, okay, I have to do this really quickly. I can't exactly. be emotional or think. I photograph people, especially for magazines, many times they'll send me to very sensitive situations. And I feel, I, I many times like do my best. I'm very like respectful and gentle and you know trying to be kind to the people, but I will only let myself feel when I'm home, when I'm looking at the pictures, I sometimes sit and cry editing them down to the edit that I want to send the magazine. So that was this kind of moment, like 
was overwhelming. I mean, Ruth Bader might be my hero to be there um, and photograph her colors. There was a person from the Supreme Court who, who shared the stories because the writer was there with me, listened to the stories. And, and when the work was out, many people were really moved, which was yeah. wonderful. It was wonderful. So yeah. it's a very special, really one of probably the assignment of a lifetime and honor, but also something that will be always precious to me, not only the pictures, the experience. Oh, that's so incredible. And yeah, I'm so fascinated. It is so interesting what you're saying. I'm just thinking about that, about like having, you know, having just a human, uh, you know, emotional reaction. And when you're working, it's like, oh, I have to turn that off. I have to try to turn that off and then <laughs> and come back to it later. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, so much. You know, you don't right. want to be too attached. Once you start crying in every situation, you become the center of attention. People have to, and this is not something I can do when I photograph other people, especially some of the stories that I'm being trusted to photograph by, you know, John Milter, the New Yorker, and Kathy Ryan, the New York Times Magazine. They put so much trust in me. They supported me over the years. And it's not about me. It's about the people who let us come into their lives and, and take pictures. So I feel it's also kind of a selfish thing. Like, I feel I can't not like this is not the time it can affect the people that you're photographing sometimes it can open them up and also it depends I think many times I'll take pictures but then we'll sit and talk when you sit and talk and you're crying and hugging a person it's okay you're right but when you're photographing this is the person's stage and, and you're just there and you're lucky that they're trusting you and that they're letting you in so you have to be very compassionate but can't cry <laughs> yeah, you know but so of course but it's so interesting because it just it made me think of something we were talking about before we recording about sort of people's energies and and not letting things get to you and it's hard you know so like do you because if you're a sensitive person like how do you do you have like a little mantra on your head that's like all right like let's snap out of it you know like how do you handle how do you actually do that <laughs> I, I don't I just feel I'm trying to like I'm it's really the observer. There's a person there. Sometimes there are very special moments that are happening. You know, many times people are asking, is it staged or not? Sometimes people are doing things for my camera. And these are people I mm. met 45 minutes earlier. Mm -hmm. And the things that they're doing for my camera are very honest. Um, they will say, okay, I'm." they'll call their son or daughter and they'll hug them. And of course, they're doing it for my camera. But it's not... It's, in many ways, it's it's more genuine. It's like the spotlight is on them, literally sometimes, but also metaphorically. And they are saying, thank you, you know, sometimes with that tension. They want me to capture those moments because I share pictures I take with the people that I photograph as well. And they share something from themselves. And it's about being there and watching it and trying to document it in the best way, um, but not interfering fearing it with something like 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 crying I feel like I'm cry later or when they're sharing a story with me and you know sometimes you're moved um, I photographed a woman who lost her daughter and she's helping raising the children and she talked to me and I cried and we hugged but that was uh, during lunch break yeah <laughs> right so then, you know I picked up the camera and I can't 
scrap or you know I can't it can't be about me or my yeah sure 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 yeah Yeah, that makes sense um it's just so interesting because you you have you know because your your work is so personal and even when you are doing assignments there are personal assignments, right? I mean, not personal to you, but they're very, right. like, you know, so. Right. Personal um, stories and it's Yeah, real exactly, exactly. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so fascinating. Well, I have, if it's okay, I have two more questions that I usually ask everybody. Um, okay. And so this is kind of going to come from left field, but it's it's a question I like to ask everyone, which is, what is an act of kindness that in your life that you received that was transformative in some way or had a big impact on your life? Um, I mean, there's so many little ones and big ones. I think I was raised with a lot of kindness for my parents, and this is really the big one. Um, I was raised, not only they were kind to me, they always told me how having me and raising me is the most beautiful thing in their lives. And and it it, it really made a difference. And they're always supportive of me. Always, always, always. And then when I moved to America... There were many, it was very extreme, especially in those first months, because a lot of things were really difficult. Many people are, you know, the art world and galleries, they can feel very cold and snobbish, and they're also bombarded by artists, and I understand. Uh, But eventually I was taken on by uh, Frank Roger, Frank Moresca and Roger Rico, Rico Moresca Gallery, and they were so kind to me in ways that only now, every every year that goes by and I get older, I'm thinking about how kind they were to me. I mean, they really help. They try to help my husband get a job. They would get me dentist. I'm even not even talking about the fact that without me knowing anything, they were so fair and honest professionally, representing me with you know all everything from covering expenses and payment. I'm not only talking about that. They really helped me with every everything I needed. They were always kind, even when, you know, they decided to go to an art fair and not show my work. It was a professional relationship, but they were so kind. And I many times think that without them, whether it's a good or not thing, I might have not stayed in America because it's so difficult to come here. I never went to school here in America. Um, you know, it was so difficult to come and stay here and form a life here. And their kindness maybe is the reason that I stayed. Oof, I'm, now I'm crying. <laughs> that's so beautiful. Oh, wow. That's so, that's so profound. Wow. And I just love what you're, it's like they were kind to you on a human level. It wasn't just professional, like you said. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think part of it I even took for granted. I'm like, whoa, people in America are nice until you know, I get older. <laughs> like, oh, that yeah. was an unusual thing. I always knew they're good people, but yeah. they were really, oh. really um, wonderful, kind, hearts of gold, and yeah, you know, I'll, I'll never forget it. Well, that's why I love asking this question because I mean, it's incredible how people don't understand how something so simple can be, be so important to a life, you know, of like just a simple oh my God, I yeah. know, I know little gestures of kindness and big ones. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last question is uh, <laughs> another, another big question. Um, can you, can you share a piece of art? So book, album, film, comedy, anything that is important to you? So uh, the movie Amadeus of Milos Forman was 
something that really, um, really affected me. I saw it first time. I was, I think, 14 when I saw this movie. Um, and it's about Mozart and Salieri, each of them and who they are and how they dealt with excellence and mediocrity in music. And I've seen this movie um, since so many times. By the way, I played classical piano for 13 years, so I played since I was five years old, and I went to concerts, and my mom was a kind of a typical kind of Jewish tiger mom. Um, then I went to a high school of music and dance, and so classical music was a big part of my life. I studied it thoroughly, and I practiced every day, and I knew at some point, especially when I started this high school, that I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough to be a solo pianist. So I saw this movie in so many points of my life um, and it really affected me. The artist dealing with jealousy, mediocrity, love and admiration mixed with, with even hate at times. And this is something that I, it really became a, a part of me. Um, there are many, from Kate Bush music, there are many things that really became a part of who I am, but this is one. Wow. Oh, that's that's such a great answer. <laughs> thank you, Eleanor, so much. I am just so grateful for you. So thank you for spending this time with me. <laughs> no, thank you for listening to me and, and giving my work a platform and exposure. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This episode was audio produced by Katie McMurrin. The music is by Madison Warren.